the World, a fictional adventure told in 100 episodes. Episode 27, Two If By Sea. After the sinking of the Orion, after the crew split into two groups, after the reunion, and after the second great debate, Father Thomas found himself recalling his experience to a group of Anglican missionaries. He'd been back only a few months when propositioned to speak at a weekend conference regarding spiritual burnout. He led a seminar on healthy versus unhealthy doubt offered up morning prayers, and, on the last day of the conference, was a part of a panel on, quote, finding God in the world. Towards the end of the hour-long panel, an attendee asked the question, what has God used in the world to pull you back to him? The panel had the usual responses. The smile of an orphan, acts of charity by strangers, the example of faithful servants who have completed lives of integrity for God, and then, it was Father Thomas's turn to answer. He held the microphone with both hands and said, As I have mentioned earlier, for many years I was a faithless corpse, walking around like a zombie. I was supposed to be this priest for this exciting expedition. I was supposed to be the moral high ground for a boat of dreamers. It was my job to be a spiritual counselor, a spiritual comforter. But I did none of that. I was a walking corpse. But God pulled me back two times. Well, really one time. But I needed a foretaste so that the real experience would stick. The first time, our expedition, our boat, was stuck way up north near the Arctic Circle. We had been barricaded in by ice and storm for weeks on end. We couldn't stay warm. All the computers and electronics on board had betrayed us. We were alone, freezing, stuck, and slowly starving. But then, on the day of our redemption, there was a break in the ice. That alone would be reason to sing praises. But out of the break, out of that one iceless circle we saw, we witnessed these tremendous spears javelining out of the water. Narwhals. A pod of narwhals were coming to surface, coming to breathe in sweet air. Right beside us, right in our break in the ice. They were magical, truly magnificent, beautiful creatures. Seeing those things up close, personally, it's nothing like seeing a nature documentary. Trust me, we don't need unicorns as long as narwhals are around. I'd like to start a petition to call them uni-whales. Maybe they'll get the love they deserve then. (laughs) I didn't know it then, but that was God sending us a gift. Things got better for us from that day on. One small break of ice led to another, led to another, led to another, until we were free. We could breathe again. Sorry, this is a long story. The narwhals helped prepare for what came next. 
Some time later, we were sailing off the coast of Peru. Over the course of a day or so, we, we were just hammered by five rogue waves. The last one, there's, there's no way to describe it. I was on deck when it came. It was like the hand of God swooping me up. A cliff of water. It blocked out the sun. It was so tall. Knifed down and through our ship. It lifted me clear off the boat. For a moment, it just it felt like flying. I've imagined since then that it must be a similar feeling to being caught up in a tornado. That's, that's the closest I can come to explaining what it feels like to be caught in a tidal wave. I decided... And... You have to understand, I was so nervous, so anxious, depressed, all the time. I decided I wasn't going to fight this thing. I was going to let this, this titanic wave be the end of me. I wasn't thinking about heaven or hell or, or, or even God. I was just thinking about it all ending. I wanted to pull the release valve. I wanted all the gunk in my head to be flushed out. And if dying in the palm... Of this godforsaken wave was how I achieved that flush out? Then so be it. I decided to die. I thought, since I'm dying down here... Oh, and I should say, when you're controlled by waves such as that, you're thrown in so many directions, I had no conception of where up was. Even if I wanted to live, how could I find it? Which way was up? I remember... I opened my eyes because I thought I should die with my eyes open. I want to be the type of person that says my eyes were open when I die. I don't know why that was important to me at that time, but it was. So I opened my eyes and there it was. This creature, this enormous, gentle, this mystical being floated beside me. It's the biggest thing I've ever seen. Who cares about rogue waves? This thing felt like it must have been bigger than any wave in the world in the history of mankind. It was a jellyfish. Some sort of jellyfish. Kinda a pink color with purple stripes. It was the most gorgeous thing I'd ever seen. How could I lose faith in God when he has made such splendor on the earth as that? The the jellyfish was moving horizontally, or at least horizontally from my vantage point. And I don't know why, I just I wanted to follow it. So I swam in its direction, just to be closer to it. And, and as I followed it, and my lungs were crying out, I, I noticed light was getting brighter. The jellyfish was directing me up. God was using the jellyfish to get my head back above water. And... Obviously, I made it out. I made it up. God has used his ocean creatures to re-inspire me, to give me hope, and to reignite my faith in a God who's always watching. Father Thomas stopped talking. The room was quiet. After the panel, a younger man approached the father. Uh, can I, can I ask you... Yes. When that wave hit, did it kill anyone on the crew? Amazingly, no. I was the only one on deck. We all saw the wave a couple minutes before it came. There was plenty of time to get below. I... I, uh... Father Thomas sized up his Inquisitor. 
Have you ever read the book of Jonah? Sure. You know the part where God causes a storm, and the storm won't subside until Jonah jumps overboard? Sure, yeah. Uh, of course. Our God is a truly jealous type. Thomas turned to walk away. Wait, what? What did you mean? God was angry at you? You were Jonah? Thomas swung around and spoke softly. There was an idol aboard the ship. An idol with an evil spirit in it. Its master had just died, and that spirit blamed us. It was angry. I held on to the idol as the final wave hit, to make sure that idol would be driven to the depths of the sea. I wanted it to be undone by the very force it called upon. Uh-uh. Nobody. That's not how God works. Demons don't have power over nature. Thomas smiled coyly. Where'd you read that? Four things happened when the fifth wave hit the Orion. Thing one. Miraculously, no one died. Thing two. Father Thomas was battered and tossed more than a mile away from the Orion. He would tread water and bob for an hour before choosing a direction to swim. After 20 minutes or so moving in that direction, the bedraggled priest spotted his group. The Orion was united, if only ever so briefly. Thing three. In an effort to heroically save the lives of her fellow crew, Lizard took to the wheel moments before the freak of nature struck. She did her best to ride the wave up and over the behemoth. Just before cresting the zenith, however, the Orion reached its angle of repose, slipping back down the thundering wall. The force of the current somersaulted the ship numerous times. Thing 4. During the blow, Jen's wig slipped off. Having a lack of wig-oriented cosmetic supplies aboard the ship, Jen had used an industrial-strength tape to keep her false hair situated pristinely atop her head. When it ripped off, it took a bushel of newly-minted real hair with it, as well as a top layer of scalpel skin. The result of which, everyone would notice but not acknowledge, was that young, beautiful Jennifer looked like she had mange. This disaster, as well as the self-evident truth that she no longer had access to wigs, led Jen to vow to live life as she was. If she was bald, so be it. She'd sport her baldness boldly. One should note here that although this became Jen's personal mantra, she was keen to grow out her hair and indeed, when available, Jennifer Dash was faithful to implement an arsenal of cosmetic makeups and supplies to present whenever possible the most brilliant and refined Jen as achievable. By the time Father Thomas's head poked up above the water on the horizon, the waning crew of the Orion had successfully abandoned ship. 
the vessel itself was still somehow bobbing bottom side up. But its demise was inevitable, its death as certain as the sunset. As for the crew of the Orion, they had divvied themselves up between two smaller boats, the Orion Skiff, a small metal boat with a motor, and an orange emergency raft. This world is one wherein things tend to happen all at once. Revelations come at the most bewildering times, and in clumps. Upon the revelation that his ship was sinking into the depths of the Pacific, Captain Alfred Bacon of the Orion searched furiously for a reason to survive, for a reason to endure, for a reason to do anything. He gripped a small book in his claws, the lone artifact from the known triangle. He opened it. As he did so, a small scrap floated loose. On it, direct coordinates. More intriguing still, the coordinates were nary a day away. Pishtaco's Island. It was so close, so damn close. And then, a rapturous thought took the captain captive. They could still make it, at least some of them. The mission didn't have to end, not for everyone. The spirit of the Orion could endure. Alfred had lost his two children aboard this ship. He couldn't bear for it to just descend like the souls of his offspring into the deep abyss. It had to live on. He wouldn't accept this dismal end, this finale without reason, without hope. No, hope was indeed to spring eternal, and here it was. The emergency raft would wait for rescue. Lizard managed an SOS that reached several authorities before abandoning ship. Yes, the raft would wait, but the skiff, the motorized skiff, it didn't have to stay. It could journey on, following the shadow of Pishtaka. As much food and drink was snagged as possible before all eight, Father Thomas excluded, huddled onto the two dinghies. Jen, being of the more acrobatic ilk and yet in the midst of the years before one's body betrays oneself, took to the orange life raft, leaving the more structurally sound and thus easier to waddle into vessel for the likes of Lizard, the Captain, Isaac, and Merkel. So, quite naturally then, the boats were segregated by age. The old and the sturdy boat, Miles, Lex, Jen, and Goddard in the floatable. Jen didn't grab anything save her book and letter from Atticus. No wig. No extra clothes. She was now, more than ever before, a traveling vagabond with nothing but the shirt on her back. A shirt, one should note, that was torn at the hip rather badly. Good worker bees like Gadar and Merkel grabbed what appeared to be plenty of water, food, and first aid kits. And somehow, Sir Isaac managed to carry a whole arsenal of seemingly pointless mechanical protestations, wiggly-woos and wonky-doos. Jen couldn't make head from tails of the mechanical gyrations. But for whatever reason, Sir Isaac felt with much assurity and authority that he absolutely had to bring them along with him. It was about this time, when everyone was getting settled in their new temporary homes, when Father Thomas was spied out on the horizon. Once aboard, it was clear the man was exhausted. His muscles all drooped like jelly. But somehow, he still had his wits about him. Enough, at least, to ask. So, what happens now? We wait to be picked up, Merkel said. 
It's over, Gadar echoed to herself if no one else. That might not need to be the case, the captain optimistically offered. I happen to have on me the coordinates to the island. Silence. It's not far. If we were on the Orion still, it'd be but a day's voyage, maybe less. Guys, it's really close. We're sunk. Not all of us. We're half sunk, half hopeless, half dead, whatever you want to call it. But there's a chance yet. What chance? Lex said. The skiff has a motor. Half of you could still make it to the island. The rest of us, we'd wait for rescue, gather up resources, find a new boat, and come get you in a few days. You'd abandon us? Lex said. Not abandon. You'd... The... The people who choose to go. Well, they'd be... They'd be covert ops. They'd spy out the mission before the rest of us arrive in force. In force, Miles repeated. This was not the time for a vote. No one was thinking profound thoughts. Everyone was waterlogged. Nevertheless, quick decisions were being made. If you want to go on, raise your hand. The captain, of course, raised his own first. Gadar and Merkel's followed. Then Lex's. Neither Isaac or Thomas looked apprehensive about their decisions. They kept their hands down. Lizard raised her hand, then added, I believe we should go, for I would be a liability. We're not voting yay or nay, just on whether you personally want to go. So if you think you shouldn't, then abstain. Lizard lowered her hand. Should Jennifer Dash wait for rescue, or go onward, searching for an island of plagued demons? There was no time. A decision needed to be made now. I come to think of it, I want to go quite badly, but I shouldn't, said the captain. I need to stay with the ship, whether that be the Orion 1.0 or uh, 2.0. Then came the shuffle. Sir Isaac, Father Thomas, Lizard, and the captain himself clumsily relocated onto the raft. Gadar and Lax made their way to the motorized transport. So it appeared that it was to be Gadar, Lax, and Merkel headed to the island of Pishtaco. It would be best if it were four. Four going. Five left behind. If there's any hiccup with, you know, the emergency services, if there's no one coming for a while, six makes it hard. Five, on the other hand, though just one less. The captain let his voice trail off. He knew he couldn't strong-arm anyone to go on a mission like this, especially on a potentially fatal mission with no clear objective, no real reason. In Alfred Bacon's mind, it boiled down to what it was always meant to be. Adventure. For Jen, the decision to go came rather easily when she looked around. On her raft was Lizard, a woman with an inexhaustible appetite for strange discussions, the captain, who on his own was fine, but when paired up in a confined space with Isaac was simply disastrous. Those two were bound to touch each other over the course of the next few hours, and one, if not both, were going to fly off the rail, and there would be nowhere to escape to. Add to that, Sir Isaac had killed someone, with a gun no one knew he had. He clearly was a man of secrets, not to be entirely trusted. That left Father Thomas and Miles Faw. Both had helped Jen overcome her reoccurring nightmare, but in the last 24 hours, each had seemed deranged to Jen. She had watched Thomas make the decision to stay on deck for the last wave. Did he have a death wish, just like Robles had? And Miles, who supposedly could control everyone with his power of will, why was he so angry? Was the silent room really that important to him? And why? 
It belied a notion that Miles Faw had some surreptitious, perhaps dark motive for yearning to venture to the silent room. These were to be the five people she'd be stuck with. Or Lex, the only person on board who actually knew how to small talk, a value Jen was starting to prize quite highly, as well as Mirko and Gadar, though, strange in their own ways, were the most competent sailors the Orion had to offer. Jen bounded up and latched herself to the motorized skiff. Miles Fa quickly followed. Okay, Miles and Jen, you're a pair, it seems. Okay, okay. Then I believe we're set. We're not a pair, Jen protested. We're not a pair, she repeated at Miles. I know, I just happened to have changed my mind right when you did. Well, I changed my mind again. I'm not going. Jen feigned departure, stood up, but a small wave unbalanced her and brushed her back down. Gadar and Merkel were whispering, whispering in another language. I'm off, Gadar announced, and so she left and added herself onto the number of the raft. And so the tables were set. The game was on. Captain Alf copied the coordinates so that each side had their own copy, handed it to Merkel, and the two parties said their adieus. That was that. Decisions were made. Destinies were set. Jennifer Dash, known as Jen Free, Miles Farr, the mind reader, Alexandra Keitel, the cryptozoologist and perhaps daughter of a Selkie, and the gruff, heavy-laden Merkel rounded out the special ops mission, and they motored away. It was hard to hear anything over the sound of the motor, so the foursome stayed quiet while they roared on the surface of the sea. Jen lost track of time. She dozed off, not quite dreaming, not quite awake, falling into that void where lucid thoughts meet unexpected images. High noon. Evening. Night. They rationed their water and food. There was enough for about a week of decent meals double that if they wanted to really bear down. Three hours after sunset, they were refueling. They had enough gas for maybe four refuelings, enough to get them where they needed to go, not enough to get them anywhere else. Once they got to the island, they were going to be stuck there. Given the opportunity to hear stuff while they sat and refueled, Jen asked Miles, why'd you change your mind? Miles smiled and shrugged. I looked at who was going where. What if help took a while? Could you imagine being stuck on that dinky raft while Isaac and Alf went at it? Madness. So, it was me then. You changed your mind when I changed boats. Lex turned her attention from pouring fuel to gazing at the awkward couple. She had always wanted Miles to like her. Not necessarily romantically, but she wanted to be considered interesting enough to catch the gaze of someone as intrinsically intriguing as Miles Faw. To be liked by him was to know you were important, above average. It would be the ultimate form of validation. What do you want me to say, Jen? Miles said. I just... I don't really know anything about you. Well, now we have the time to get to know each other, don't we? Where were you born? Jen inquired. Where do you think? Uh, New York? Nope. Try again. Beijing, Lex tried. Nope. Canada, Jen offered. 
close. I was raised in Toronto. Okay, I give up. Istanbul. Jen was struggling hard to remember which country Istanbul belonged to. You're Istanbulish then? Turkish. And no. Engine ready, engine roaring. Conversation over. By now, Jen thought, gazing up at the many sparkles in the night sky. The raft's been rescued. Captain Alf and the other four are headed to land. They probably have a warm meal in their bellies. Maybe Father Thomas is being attended to by some nurse or doctor. He didn't seem well at the end. How did he survive that wave, anyway? And what if another comes? Somehow, Jen knew, just as everyone else did in their heart of hearts, that the rogues were over. There would be no more. The waves existed to destroy the Orion. That happened. Orion destroyed. No more. So there would be no more waves. This superstition that nature was somehow bound to honor this purely speculative pack was believed by every member of the Orion. And because of this, there was peace. Rest. Morning. Day. High noon. Evening. It was boring, but not bad. The ocean was calm, the speeding of the motor consistent. Aside from a few scattered conversations, everyone was quiet, calm, peaceful. Life was okay. Everything was working out fine. Just as full dark came on, the boat rattled. The engine still worked, but all three of the compasses on board began to somersault and veer off in separate directions. The EMP! Merkel shouted. We're close! We better be! Miles yelled. They tried as best they could to stay the course. No one liked to think that if they missed the island, or if there was no island, they'd die out here. And in that dark night, four from the Orion found then what they thought would be redemption. This was not the type of island gorgeous movie stars stumble upon in films. Coconut trees, no palm trees, no high mountain peaks overlooking a luscious rainforest. No. This was a plateau. The whole island looked like a mountain cut off evenly at its base. There were cliffs that rose maybe 30, 40 feet, and then a barren, flat land. Somewhere between midnight and sunrise, they reached the base of the cliffs, and began to climb Pishtaco's Island. Hey guys, Solve the World is produced by myself, Dante Stack. All the sound effects and music can be found under Creative Commons licenses and given appropriate attribution on our show notes page at DanteStack.com. A scheduling note here, we'll be taking the month of July off. I know that's not the greatest news, but I need that time to stay ahead of the curve and not have the pressure of trying to cram these episodes in and get them finished every week. Hopefully this way I can get far enough ahead so that come August... We can faithfully get the episodes out week by week without any delays whatsoever. Thanks for your patience. Um, Please go back during the month of July, re-listen to some, share them with friends, help the show grow during this time period. Or, if you need something new, try out my other podcast, 365 Honest Questions. That show 
will continue to produce new content in July. So if you need to hear my lovely voice, go over to 365. You can also find that show on our website or search for 365 Honest Questions on iTunes or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Thanks. Hello, my name is Guilherme from Brazil. I've listened to all 100 episodes of Jen's story. Jen, Miles, Lex, and Merkel are about to discover what Pishitaco's island has in store for them. The island is not a hidden waiting to be found. It's not paradise lost and found by half the crew of the Orion. It's a dark place, ruled by a force stronger than DKF Adam. We will continue to follow Jen while the rest of the Orion goes on a separate journey. We will reunite with them eventually, but our attention must stay with Jen. These are trying times and she will lead us with her, praying her in the darkness, in the heart of this godforsaken island. That's next time on Solve the World.